0: Matthew eighteen twelve through 35. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than any of the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When the fellow servant saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant!
1: Here we go. As we sang this morning, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And friends, that's exactly how Jesus describes each one of us. The the first part of the passage that Sue read for us was the parable of the lost sheep. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. You know, Jesus, throughout the course of his three year ministry, there's no question. That he would repeat and he'd retell and he'd adapt parables for different crowds and different situations and different purposes. And in Luke 15, we find this same parable of the lost sheep, the, the shepherd leaving the ninety nine. But in Luke 15, it's used in the context of leaving the ninety nine to go find that one lost and unsaved sinner and lead them home for the first time. It, it has an evangelistic purpose. But when Jesus tells the parable here in Matthew 18, it's the same parable, but he doesn't seem to be talking about evangelism, about telling, reaching those that have never been reached. He seems to be using the same parable to communicate the need to rescue sheep who have wandered from the fold because prone to wander, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. You know, when we look at the context of this parable and all of this teaching here in Matthew 18, in verses 1 through 4, we find that it starts with a discussion about who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the context is Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he's talking about other disciples, other followers of Jesus. He's talking about relationships within the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about relationships within the family of God. And in verses 5 and 6, Jesus warns about causing others in the kingdom to stumble into sin. In verses 7-9, through He warns against temptations that will come to sin. Because Jesus knows the problem with us. He knows my problem. He knows your problem. We are prone to wander. We are prone to be led and to lead into sin. We are prone to give in to temptations to sin. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave The God I love. And so he tells us this lost sheep parable. Jesus says, what happens? So what happens when one of you does wander? What happens when one of you does give into temptation? What happens when one of you is led astray? What happens when one wanders? And the answer is right in the parable for us. Leave the 99 on the hills and go find the one who has wandered. Because he says, your father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should be lost. Jesus says, like a good shepherd, love the wanderer, the sinful, the deceived, enough to seek him, to seek her, and love the wanderer home. Church, love the wanderer home. As we sang, O oh wanderer, come home. You're not too far. Lay down your hurt. Lay down your heart. And come as you are. Love the wanderer home. Of all the promises that we make to one another when we become church members, arguably there is none that is more important, more difficult, more avoided, more maligned, or more misunderstood and neglected than the promise to love the wanderer home. You know, the most repeated command that Jesus gives His people is the command to love one another. When we read the New Testament, the command to love one another is repeated the most often. And that makes sense to us, doesn't it? In fact, we we actually really like that. But you know what number two is? The second most repeated one another command in the scriptures is to admonish or rebuke one another. So only second to loving one another is the call to admonish, to rebuke one another. Admonish means to warn or reprimand firmly, to exhort, to rebuke. It's to love the wanderer home. You see, because this truth implies that somehow someone has wandered from the truth. And if this is the second most repeated command, then it implies that we're going to need it. And we're probably going to need it often. It implies that you and I are prone to wander. And thus we're all, every one of us, in need of admonition at times. Every one of us is going to wander. And every one of us, at some time or another, is going to need to be loved back home. Pastor and author Paul Tripp wrote a book for church leadership titled Lead, 12 Gospel Principles for Leadership in the Church. And in the book, he writes to leadership teams And he warns them of this truth. And he says, prepare yourself for when it happens. This is what he writes. If you acknowledge the presence and the seducing, deceiving power of remaining sin in your lives, you'll acknowledge that everyone in your leadership community is still susceptible to temptation and still at risk. You know that sins, small and great, will infect your community and obstruct and divert its work. You live with the knowledge that everyone in your leadership community is still in need of rescuing and sanctifying grace. So you set in motion plans for dealing with the sin, weakness and failure that will inevitably rear its ugly head. He writes like Jesus says, plan for it, be prepared for it, because leaders and laity alike are susceptible to temptation. Pastors and parishioners alike are susceptible to sin's deception. Those who are long in the faith and those who are new to the faith are all prone to wander. And at some point or another, church, we all need to be lovingly led back home. And the word that is often used for this, the much maligned phrase, is church discipline. You know, church discipline is a frightening and often maligned phase. It's been misrepresented and mishandled. Church discipline has been abused and used, but properly understood and lovingly practiced Church discipline is an indispensable part of the Christian life. Now hear that again. Properly understood and lovingly practiced, church discipline is an indispensable part of the Christian life. Because friends, if we are all prone to wander, if we're all prone to leave the God we love, then at one time or another, every one of us, you and me, will need to be led back home. We all need this idea of discipline. You know, John Wesley, who was the founder of the Methodist Church, he was a serious advocate of church discipline. Be glad you didn't go to his church. In one sermon, Wesley preached, it was a common saying among the Christians in the primitive church that the soul and the body make a man and the spirit and discipline make a Christian, implying that none could be a real Christian without the help of church discipline. None could be a real Christian without the help of discipline. Of brothers and sisters willing to lovingly lead the wanderer back home. Uh, Again, it must be disciplined, properly understood, and lovingly practiced. But church, without it, every one of us, from the greatest to the least, from those who've been following Christ the longest to those that are newest in the faith, are prone to wander. So what does properly understood, lovingly practiced church discipline look like? Practically, what does it look like for you and for me to love the wanderer home. Well, following the parable of the wandering sheep that Jesus gave, he gives us instructions beginning in verse 15. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, some ancient manuscripts don't have the phrase against you, as is noted at the bottom of some of our English translations. But seeing as later on, Peter also asks in verse 21, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? It seems likely these two passages stand together. So while Jesus might specifically be speaking to when a brother or a sister sins against you, the principles that he gives us are generally, generally, generally applicable to any wandering, to any sin. So what's our, what's our response to wayward sheep? We'll, well, look at verse 15. First, Jesus says, go. He says, if he or she sinned against you, don't wait for him. Don't wait for her to apologize. Jesus says, our relationships, church, are too important for pettiness. They're too important for pettiness. So take the initiative and go. And if I could get a little bit more specific here, go in person. Email is a horrible way to question or confront. You know, let's say that again. Email is a horrible way to question and confront. Yes, face to face is more uncomfortable and it's more inconvenient, especially nowadays when our faces are hidden with masks. But church, it's necessary. You see, the greater the distance, the greater the distortion. The greater the distance between two people, the greater the distortion. When we are not sitting across the table from a person, it's easier to caricature them in my mind and assume the worst about them. You know, we, we've all seen. In fact, some of us have drawn. I have a I have a cartoon caricature of myself that was drawn years ago, and it a caricature purposefully emphasizes and distorts features to comical proportions. I mean, if you have a large nose. In the caricature, you have a huge nose. If you have a bald head, it's a shiny, shiny bald head. If you have a wide grin, that grin now takes up your entire face. Cartoon caricatures purposefully distort and overemphasize for comic effect. But church, the caricatures in our minds are not comical. They are cancerous. The caricatures that we draw in our minds of one another when we are at a distance from one another will sicken and destroy us. And the greater the distance between us, the greater the distortion, the more distorted that caricature of that other person is that we will carry in our minds. And being virtual, friends, leaves too much distance between us. So when Jesus says go, I will say go to them personally. And if you must respond to something that came in an email, go to them personally soon thereafter and follow up face to face. Because the greater the distance, the greater the distortion. So shrink the distance. Shrink the distance between you and the one who you think has sinned against you. Shrink the distance so you're face to your face and you see them for who they really are and not for the caricature that you've drawn in your mind. So distorted and those things so overemphasized and just wrong. You know, another reason why email is dangerous is because of keyboard courage. I, I've, I've gotten it before and gotten myself in trouble for it. And so have you. Keyboard courage, because behind the anonymity of a keyboard, I write things that I would never say to someone face to face. You know, we are often far more harsh in an email message than we would ever speak directly to a A person. And in fact, the problem is behind the keyboard in the screen, it's easy to forget that there's a person on the receiving end of that message. All you have to do is look at our so-called discussions on Facebook or Twitter or other social media. When we're disembodied from one another, the conversations with and about those other disembodied people usually become these shouting matches with increasing intensity and vitriol. The greater the distance, the greater the distortion. So when Jesus says go to them, he doesn't mean just send an email, text, tweet, or a snarky Facebook post. He means go face to face. And in verse 15, when Jesus says go and tell him it's fault between you and him alone, we remember that this must always start between just you and me. You know, for the December business meeting, the elders will be proposing some clarified language regarding our church discipline here. And this is part of what we propose to say. Discipline should always involve the smallest circle of persons as possible. Perceived interpersonal offenses should always first seek resolution interpersonally without soliciting the opinion, prayers or involvement of others. For this puts us at risk of dishonoring our brother or sister in Christ by gossip or slander. Discipline should always involve the smallest circle of persons possible. The issue must always first remain just between you and me. We are to go directly to the offender without making any other stops, without rallying support, without soliciting opinions or making prayer requests. Because let's be honest, 90% of the time, it just becomes gossip. And whether intentional or not, it puts us in danger of slander. Friends, it is always easier to talk about a person than to talk to him. It is always easier to talk about a person than to talk to her. But friends, such gossip is not only destructive and divisive, It also usually just reinforces my prideful biases, assumptions, and the character of that other person that I've drawn. Gossip never heals. It only divides. So go face to face. Keep it small. And if we involve others prematurely, church, then we alert others unnecessarily to an issue that might have been quietly and amicably resolved with little embarrassment or fanfare. I mean, if our, brothers with our, if our brother or sister, upon being pr- approached, immediately agrees and repents, then the issue is resolved, isn't it? And if I haven't told anyone else, then I can protect my brother or sister's dignity. I can protect them from unnecessary embarrassment before others. But if I've involved others, all of a sudden I've put at risk the dignity of my brother or my sister. Consider the wisdom of Proverbs 17, verse 9. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats the matter separates close friends. Love seeks to resolve and cover an offense without letting others know. And our goal, church, is love. Our goal should always be to keep it as small as possible because I never want to embarrass or shame my brother or sister. I simply desire to love the wanderer home. And we should also keep it small because, friends, let's be honest, the vast majority of our perceived slight offenses and conflicts are usually a simple matter of miscommunication, misunderstanding, or making a snap judgment. You know, I've confessed before. Confessed before, I'll confess again. I might struggle with some snap judgments while I'm driving because when that person in front of me stops short or takes a maneuver too close, I'm quick to say, moron. He's a bad driver. And again, in my defense, I am from Massachusetts. And so we naturally struggle with those things. But the truth is, the thing that the guy in front of me has just done, do I ever do those things? Do I ever stop short or maneuver too close? Well, sure I do. And is it because I'm a bad driver? Well, no. There's more to the story. You know, like the the sun blinded me or, or the GPS on my phone lagged or... Some other driver acted unexpectedly. When somebody else makes a bad move, it's because he's a bad driver. When I make a bad driver, bad move, it's not that I'm a bad driver. There's other circumstances that you just don't understand. There's extenuating circumstances. There's more to the story. And church, in humility, we must always seek to understand that there is more to the story. Go face to face. Keep it small and seek to understand. You know, as Pastor Oswald Chambers wrote, there's always one fact more in every life of which we know nothing. Therefore, Jesus says, judge not. Or you've probably heard this sentiment in a very popular phrase today. Be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a battle that you know nothing about. In other words, there's more to the story. And our first step should be understanding. Our first step should be to make sure we have the whole story. You don't know what that person gone, has gone through or is going through. You don't know that person's background. You don't know what kind of day they just had. You don't know how far they might have already come in struggling with this issue. You don't know the bad. The, you don't, might not realize the bad that you see in her life is so much better than it was last week or last month or last year. In humility, we need to realize, church, we don't have the entire story. And so we need to start by seeking to understand. But friends, after we humbly seek to understand, then we must lovingly speak the truth. Go face to face. Keep it small. Seek to understand and then love them to help and to home. Humility and the fact that there's always more to the story doesn't mean we should simply justify or rationalize away sin. It, It might help me to understand why someone struggles with a particular sin so I can have more compassion in my response. And humility will help me approach another person without pride. Because the problem with pride is that I tend to approach people and I say, well, I could never do that. But humility approaches them and says, there go I but the grace of God. Humility says, if I see this in you, it's probably only because I see it in myself and I do the same thing. But sin must be called sin, lovingly confronted and repented of, because, church, sin is deadly. Sin is deadly, and the wandering must be loved to health and to home. I mean, again, it's not humility to go to the doctor and for your doctor to say, well, I didn't want to tell you that I saw stage four cancer in you because, you know, that's not nice news and that might have hurt your feelings. Or I didn't feel like I had the right to tell you that you had cancer because I have also had cancer in the past. Or, or if the cancer was really serious, you'd probably already be aware of it yourself without me saying anything, so I didn't say anything. Or, who am I to recommend a treatment plan for you? Because there are so many doctors, frankly, that are better than I am. Or, Or, you probably know what's best for a treatment plan for you, so I don't want to speak into that. Friends, statements like that are not humility. That's spiritual. That's malpractice. And if we do the same thing, it's spiritual malpractice. Under the guise of humility, if we allow a malignancy to grow in someone's life, but don't say anything, if I, if I don't speak what I see or what I fear to see, it's not humility. It's malpractice. And I am leaving a brother or sister potentially wandering with a malignancy growing in his or her soul. True humility calls sin, sin, and then humbly and lovingly invites the sinner to help. You know, James wrote about this in James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. He said, My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We're all susceptible to sin's deception and destruction. And church, every one of us needs others who will firmly and gently lead us back to health and to home. And friends, in humility, let's think about how best to do this. You know, humility doesn't make declarations as much as it asks questions of another person. I don't understand this. Can you explain that to me? Can you help me understand why? Humility says, I don't have all the story, but I want to ask questions so that I can understand. And if there are things I feel like I need to speak back, I'll speak the truth, but I'll do so in love and in humility. Humility doesn't condemn someone in their sin if it's exposed, but neither does it minimize and rationalize another person's sin. Properly practiced church discipline communicates that sin is grave, but grace is greater. Church, hear that again. Properly practiced church discipline communicates that sin is grave, but grace is always greater. Greater than all of our sin. Friends, this is the gospel. The goal of church discipline is to remind the wandering of the gospel. It's to bring them to drink again from the fountain of inexhaustible grace. There's hope for the hopeless and all those who strayed. Come sit at the table and come taste the grace. There's rest for the weary, rest that endures. Earth has no sorrow that heaven can't cure. This is the gospel fountain to which you and I must be led to drink again and again. Every time we come, whether we come willingly or whether we're dragged there lovingly by a brother and sister in Christ, we need to to come again and again to the well of forgiveness, for it is an inexhaustible well. Grace is always greater. So yes, our sin is grave, and if unaddressed, it leads to death. But grace is greater than our sin. So the goal of church discipline is never to condemn another in their sin, never to look down on a wanderer, but to love them to health and to home, to speak the truth about sin and all of its dangers, but to speak the gospel of grace and to love them home. So go face to face, keep it small, seek to understand, love them to health and home, And friends, win your brother. Win your sister. You notice Jesus concludes this statement in verse 15. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. And I said in another sermon just recently, in an interpersonal conflict, the goal is never to win the argument. The goal is to win my brother. The goal is to win my sister. And church, if you are going to her to win the argument, If you're going to him in order to be proven right or to get an apology, then you care more about what you're going to get than you do about your brother or sister. You care more about you than you do about them. We don't go to win the argument. We don't go to be proven right. We don't go to get an apology. We go because we care about them and because we want to win them, not win the argument or an apology. When we go, it can't be for ourselves. It must be for the sake of our brother or sister. The Lord must help me to value being right with my brother more than being proven right in the eyes of my brother. And that's why Peter's question and Jesus closing parable teach us. Friends, we need to learn to let it go. You know, Peter's question, verse 21, was how many times do I have to forgive? And in Judaism of that day, forgiving for three times was considered generous. So when Peter said seven times, he probably thought he was incredibly generous. And Jesus was going to go, good job, Peter. Way to go. Jesus goes, not seven. Seventy-seven. And friends, we know that Jesus wasn't saying "On on time 78, kick the bum to the curb. Jesus is using hyperbole to say, forgive without keeping track, lavishly, extravagantly, ridiculously, because that's how God forgave you. The goal is that you might be able to let it go. And Jesus emphasizes that with the parable of the unforgiving of the forgiving king and the unforgiving servant. And the punchline of that parable is in verse 33 and verse 35. The king says, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And then Jesus concludes, so also my Heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Just as Christ has done for us, we need to be ready by His grace at work within us to let personal offenses go. As we sang this morning, how good it is to embrace His command to prefer one another and to forgive as He forgives. The unmerited unfair, unwarranted mercy that He poured out on you, you are to now pour out on others. That's why Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6, 12. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Church, you and I need to ask Christ for the strength to let it go. Christian author Tim Chowley correctly observed, Christians don't get get to hold a grudge. Christians don't get to hold a grudge. You've only got two options when a person commits an offense against you. You can overlook it or you can confront it. You can overlook it or you can confront it. You can confront it, as Jesus describes in this passage, with the goal of winning your brother and sister so that you can forgive it and let the offense go. Or you can choose to overlook it by God's grace, forgive it and let it go. Because minor personal slights and offenses can be overlooked and forgiven for the sake of love. Just as Proverbs nineteen eleven teaches, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. And as the Apostle Peter writes in first Peter four eight, above all keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Church, sometimes we carry things bitterness, resentment, offences done against us. But God's calling us to let it go. Are you still carrying it with you? Referencing it? Bringing it back up? Revisiting it? By His grace, let it go. Christ wants us to be more concerned about the spiritual well being of the other and the health of our relationships than our own personal rights or egos. So go face to face. Keep it small. Seek to understand. Love them home. Win your brother and let it go. And church, notice I just preached an entire message about the concept of church discipline, and not once did I mention church leadership or the larger church body's involvement. That's because 99% of church discipline should happen interpersonally. This should be part of our life. Our life together. Here's some more of the language that will be proposed for consideration at the December business meeting. Church discipline is not meant to be punitive, but instructional and correctional. The majority of discipline happens informally as a natural part of discipleship. Members of Christ's body regularly teaching, rebuking, correcting, encouraging, and training one another towards obedience and righteousness. Formal church discipline involving the church leadership only becomes necessary when informal discipline, such as one-on-one instruction and personal appeals, have failed to produce repentance. And a member persists in an obvious and persistent pattern of sin in his or her life. Sins about which an offender is grieved and repentant when confronted don't necessitate formal discipline. So, church, I want you to understand when we talk about this scary word, church, discipline, understand that most basically and importantly, we're simply talking about a mutual responsibility to one another. We're talking about our life together. We're talking... Most often about the small circle of between you and me, in which we love the wanderer home. Now, next week, we will discuss the verses in Matthew 18 that we didn't discuss this morning. And at that time, we will consider when and how it's appropriate to widen the circle. When should church discipline involve leadership or the congregation? But for today, church, what we're talking about and what we need to consider and understand is that we are all prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. And that means we all need and we all need to become brothers and sisters who are willing to preach the gospel to one another and to love the wanderer home. People who are willing to go face to face, to keep it small, to seek to understand, to love them home, to win our brothers and our sisters. And when we've been offended, to let it go. Let us together Live out the gospel of grace. For as we so often sing, church, our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. Let's live that. And let's pray. Christ, help us. Help us in our weakness. Help us in our struggle. Help us to love and to forgive as you've forgiven. Help us to lead one another home. Lord, I pray that you would give to us a reconciling spirit, a heart like your heart, in grace and grace in abundance. Father, we commit ourselves and this congregation and all of our relationships to you and ask for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and let's close by singing the truth of the gospel that he will hold me fast.